Well, our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 22. We've been considering how God demonstrated in the story of Abraham and the coming of his son, the coming of the Son of God. And uh, this morning we're going to look at chapter 22, uh, which talks not so much about the coming of the son of Abraham, but the sacrifice of the son of Abraham. Beginning at the start of the chapter, Moses writes, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram. And offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You who are beloved of God because of Jesus the Son. Genesis 22 is perhaps not a typical Christmas time text. It certainly isn't shepherds in the field by night or wise men from afar. But what we find in this text does in fact reveal the essence 
of what Christmas is all about. If you research this passage, if you read the scholarly commentaries, you'll find that there is agreement among the scholars that this passage is pivotal and essential in terms of the unfolding of God's covenant plan and the unfolding of His his redemptive purposes. Where they disagree is in deciding why. In deciding what the significance is of this story. Some say this is really all about Abraham's faith. A faith that is powerful and yet still somewhat blind. They claim that that Abraham misunderstood God's command. God wanted Abraham to spiritually sacrifice his son, to set him apart unto the service of God. And Abraham misunderstood, forcing God to intervene at the last minute to save Abraham's son. That's what some of them say. Others say, no, no, this is a mishmash of oral traditions and legends about Abraham. These scholars believe that we can't really know how much, if anything, of this story actually happened, but if any of it did, it likely reflects a time when God's ancient people actually practiced child sacrifice. Still others claim that this is really just a parable of sorts. It's a story intended not to convey facts, but to convey the hope, the confidence, the faith of Abraham in sort of a stylized but not historical manner. And so the scholars debate how much is real and how much is not, and what's the underlying truth, the underlying message. But in the process, they miss the glorious truth that is revealed here. Beloved, this text is a Christmas story. It's the story of a true historical event in which God vividly showed Abraham how the Son of God would save him and all of his offspring and bring to pass the fullness of the promise that he first spoke in the garden in Genesis 3. The story found in Genesis 22 is in fact historically accurate in all of its details. And yet it is also a story that's much bigger than those details because it's the story of Jesus and it is the story of the church. It is our story as well as the story of Abraham and Isaac. And we see that as we consider what actually happened with Abraham and Isaac as God commands the sacrifice that will secure his people's blessing. That's the theme that we find in this passage. God commands the sacrifice that will secure his people's blessing. And we see that, first of all, as we see in the first, really the first half of this text, the unique son given as a precious sacrifice. In the first five verses, we we see the stage being set First, we're told that this happened later, that is, after what happened in chapters 17 to 21 with the promise of the Son and the giving of the covenant uh, ceremony of circumcision, the covenant um, sacrament, and then the birth of Isaac miraculously at Abraham's hundredth year and, and Sarah's ninetieth. Given what we're told here and what Isaac is called, we know that he is not yet an adult, but he's also not yet a young child. 
He's got to be at least 10 years old, maybe 12, could be even a little bit more than that, which means Abraham is over 110 years old. And out of the blue, God calls Abraham. Verse 1 tells us he did this to test his servant. See, God doesn't want his people to confess him with their mouths while worshiping other gods with their hearts or to worship him with their mouths just as a tradition, just as a matter of form. And so he tests Abraham to see whether the actions of his hands will match the confession of his mouth because the hand invariably follows the heart. The instrument of that testing is none other than Isaac, the promised son. We've seen how amazing his birth was, how that was the fulfillment of God's promises. Verse 2 shows us that this son was precious in Abraham's sight. God calls him your only son, Isaac. Now, he wasn't Abraham's only son. Technically speaking, he also had Ishmael by the, the slave woman Hagar. But in God's sight, this was... Abraham's only son, because this was his promised son. This was the one for whom he had long awaited, who came miraculously by God's power. This is the son whom Abraham loves, precious in his father's eyes. And of this son, God says, take him, go to the land of Moriah, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now Abraham's living in Beersheba. That is at the the far southern edge of the promised land. The text tells us it took them three days to journey there, walking. So this is a bit of a hike. And once he arrives, Abraham is to offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, folks, listen. There is no way to spiritualize what is said there. The burnt offering in Olam. The the word itself indicates that which ascends. It was an offering that was given for sin. It was an offering that was utterly and completely consumed upon the altar. There's no other way that word is used. There's no way that we can spiritualize or soften this. Abraham is commanded to go and kill his son and burn him up entirely on the altar. Imagine the son for whom you waited ten decades... An entire century, the son whom God sent you by miracle, the son in whom all of the promises of God, the promise by which you would have a multitude of descendants, the promise by which your blessing would be spread to all the nations of the earth, that son, I want you to take him and sacrifice him on the altar. What an amazing, dreadful command. God was demanding of Abraham not just faith, but immense faith. Faith that would trust God despite confusion and grief. Faith that would follow God, would obey the Lord, even when, humanly speaking, it made no sense. And in verses 3 through 5, we see Abraham's answer to the Lord's command. And it's a powerful answer. He doesn't say a word. Instead, he gets out of bed early and he starts splitting wood. He starts packing provisions. He gets two of his servants, gets them to load all those provisions on a donkey. He wakes up Isaac, says, come on, we're going on a trip. And they start walking. 
For three days they journey through the wilderness until suddenly he looks up and he sees the mountain of which God had spoken to him, Mount Moriah. No hesitation. No debate. No bargaining with God. No wrestling with doubt. He simply gets up and he does it. And in that departure of Abraham and Isaac, God shows a powerful image of his precious son. First of all, in in the way that Abraham willingly, inexorably takes that journey that's going to end, he believes, dreadfully. That's really the story of Jesus' life, isn't it? He wasn't just born to welcome little children onto his lap or to tell precious parables in which we delight or to give good moral instruction like we find in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the storybook Jesus. Kind, gentle Jesus. But he also came to ruffle feathers, to overturn tables in the temple, to bring healing that would astonishingly cause his enemies to gnash their teeth and plot his death. He came to suffer because that's what we deserved. He came to die because that's what we deserved. And his whole life tended toward that, just like Abraham's and Isaac's journey was all tended, tending toward that terrible end. And once they get there, near the base of the mountain, Abraham leaves the servants behind with the donkey. He says, the boy and I are going to worship and we will come back to you. And then... And then he does some things that are deeply symbolic. He he lays that wood upon his son. Now that's practical in some ways. I mean, he's 110 years old. His son is young and strong, right? Make him carry the wood. But it's not just a practical matter. Isaac, doubtless by the time they got to the top of the hill, was struggling to carry that wood. He wasn't a full-grown man. He was still a boy. And he had to carry enough wood for a sacrifice, so it wasn't a tiny amount. And he was showing how a greater son would one day struggle to carry the wood of the sacrifice. Not a bunch of split wood that time, but one solid piece of wood. The piece on which he would be hanged. The piece on which he would suffer and die and gasp out his last breaths. He would struggle so much that someone else would have to be co-opted to finish the carrying But meanwhile, Abraham picked up the knife and the fire for the sacrifice. Again, a practical matter. Those were lightweight, and yet they needed to be carried. But also, demonstrating what God would do. Because God was the one who provided for Jesus, the greater son, all of the instruments by which he would die. God was the one who sent his son. 
God was the one who orchestrated every detail in his life. God was the one who brought about those enemies at just the right time, at just the right place to plot against his son and bring him to that that horrific end. God was the one who set Pilate in his place and that Roman centurion and the soldiers under him. God was the one who carried the knife and the fire by which his son would be sacrificed. And notice how verse 6 ends. So they went, both of them together. That's not an unimportant detail. The word used there for together indicates a complete and absolute unity. Abraham and Isaac weren't just walking near each other. They were going forth in complete unity of mind, unity of purpose. Just like Jesus. Walking toward his ultimate end, toward his sacrifice with complete unity of purpose with the Father who sent him. And yet there's more. Because despite his youth, Isaac is not unwise. As they're walking along, he looks at the wood he's carrying in his hand or perhaps upon his back. He looks at his father's knife. And he says, Father... Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You see, he understands how this thing works. Something has to die. That's the way a burnt offering works. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's answer is born of pure faith. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide. How undeniably, how perfectly and completely true that is. His answer was meant to strengthen Isaac's faith. God will give us what we need. God will grant exactly the sacrifice that will delight him. How much did Isaac guess beyond that? We don't know. But we know it was enough. They went on, both of them. Together, again, manifesting that complete unity. But again, we see Jesus in Isaac. He entered this world as a child, unable to speak or walk or feed himself, totally and completely dependent not only upon God, but upon his earthly parents. But as he grew, his understanding grew. His recognition of why he was sent And in the weakness of the flesh, Jesus wasn't always eager for what was ordained for him. At Gethsemane, he confessed his earnest desire to avoid the suffering of the sacrifice. But, even there, even in the agony of his soul, he cried out, Not my will, but yours be done. Completely resolved to follow the Father. Completely united to the Father's will. That's what we see as Abraham and Isaac continue and complete their journey, arriving at the place. Now, it's worth noting that the place where they were going, Mount Moriah, would later be known as Mount Zion. This was Jerusalem. This was the place where the temple later would be built and where much later Jesus would suffer and die. Coming to that place, Abraham builds for himself an altar out of uncut stone. He lays upon that altar the wood for the sacrifice. And then comes the true test. 
Had he been sacrificing a lamb, Abraham at this point would have killed it and poured out its blood. He would have skinned it and cut the body into pieces and arranged them upon the wood on the altar. But this is no mere lamb before him. This is his son. So he simply ties his hands, binds him, lays him upon the wood on the altar. Now of Isaac's response, not a word is spoken, but I think that's telling. Isaac endures what his father is doing. He doesn't complain. He doesn't try to get away. He doesn't try to talk his father out of it. He submits, believing his father who said, the Lord himself will provide. And so finally we come to the point of the matter, verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. How true, how deep is Abraham's faith? Right there we find out. He took the knife, walked over to the altar where his son was bound and prepared to kill the child he had waited a hundred years for. That's faith. Hebrews 11, verse 19 says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed God is faithful and God is good. He promised that through this child would come the promise. He promised that through this child all the nations will be blessed. So now he commands that this child be sacrificed. Then surely he's able to bring him back to life. That's faith. That's confidence in the Lord. The likes of which I stand in awe of. And I think we all should. That's amazing faith. But then suddenly time stops. A voice thunders from heaven. The angel of the Lord, who as the text shows is none other than God himself. The angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham! Abraham! Stopping the knife, he says, here I am. And then... The Lord pr- pronounces a twofold command. First, do not lay your hand upon the boy. And then, do not do anything to him. At the very last moment, the Lord spares the life of Abraham's child. The test is ended. The faith has been demonstrated. And so the Lord intervenes before a drop of Isaac's blood is shed. Note well the lesson that we find in that. The Lord wanted to see Abraham's heart and so he tested Abraham's actions. It's easy to say, yes, I follow the Lord. Yes, I trust in the Lord. Yes, I belong to the Lord. It's harder to actually live out that confession, especially when it costs you. It's much harder To say, yes, I follow the Lord when it means that you're going to lose your job for the sake of your convictions. It's much harder to say, yes, I trust the Lord when it means entrusting your child to the Lord and sending them into a situation that that you can't control. It's easy to say, I trust the Lord, I believe the Lord. It's much harder to do that with your actions. Abraham 
trusts the Lord. That is absolutely certain and incontrovertible. He had the knife in his hand. And so God stops him at that last moment. But in doing so, he doesn't say that the sacrifice is unnecessary. In order to release Abraham from that obligation of sacrificing Isaac, someone else must die. Someone else must atone for sin. If Isaac is to escape, there must be a substitute. And so verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Now a ram, kids, that's a male sheep. Sheep were used extensively, almost exclusively, in sacrifices for sin. But a ram, a male sheep, was special. They were used specifically to atone for the sins of the priests. They were used to atone for the sins of those chosen to enter into the presence of God. And also, they were used in the ordination of priests, in setting them apart for their priestly service. It's no accident that God caused a ram to be caught in that thicket at that moment. This unexpected ram was given as the perfect substitute, which is the second point we see here. It's a brief point, but it's important. You see, Isaac was the image of Christ up to this point, but now that he has been released from that obligation, now the symbolism falls upon the ram. Look at what God provides here. He provides a ram, the atonement for the sin of his people. A ram, because his people are priests in need of purification. That ram is a living image of Christ, sent to the mountain by God himself, caught and rendered helpless despite his great power, and then sacrificed, utterly destroyed upon that altar, so that Isaac could escape, so that God's people could escape unscathed. That's Christ, our perfect substitute. We need to remember during this time of year that this is what God was doing. This is what He was doing when He sent His Son. He was removing us from the altar. When Jesus was laid in the manger, the Son was being awakened. It's time to go on a journey. When Jesus was being sent to Egypt and then returned and taken up to Galilee. Isaac was on his walk, right? But then he becomes the ram. In that public ministry, the Son of God who is all-powerful. You ever see a ram in action? They're amazing, the power they have, the sheer might of that neck as it goes into a lunge, attacking its enemy. God the Son willingly walked up that mountain, the same mountain. God the Son allowed Himself to be caught in the thicket of wicked men's plotting and planning. God the Son allowed Himself to be sacrificed and laid on that altar so that the people of God might be released, so that the people of God might be spared what they deserved. 
But then we hear again a voice from heaven, the angel of the Lord calling out once more. And in this final section of our text, we encounter the heart of God's gift for us. The unlimited blessing given as a sure promise. That's what we see at the end here. First, the Lord emphasizes the trustworthiness of his word. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Hebrews 6 points out that that is the epitome. That is the fullness of certainty. God cannot lie. All he had to do was speak. And the word was certain and undoubted. But he also takes an oath in his own name. Doubly declaring the certainty of what he is about to speak. That means we can rest on that. We can be assured of what he says here. So what does he promise? He gives a threefold blessing. First he says, he will multiply Abraham's offspring. The angel of the Lord had had already expressed this promise before, but now he expresses it emphatically, powerfully. Not only had Abraham become a father in his hundredth year, but through that child who was born, his offspring would become like the sand of the seashore and like the stars of the night sky. And then secondly, God will give victory to this offspring. He says, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. They will have victory and also more than that, as we'll see in a minute. And then a third blessing, all the nations shall be blessed through Abraham's offspring. In each of these, notice the unlimited character of the blessing. The number of Abraham's offspring, absolutely uncountable, like the grains of sand on the seashore. The victory of Abraham's offspring, absolute. They will possess even the gate of their enemy. The gate of your enemy, that's the choke point, right? You have the gate of your enemy, you own their city and everything within it. And the blessing of Abraham's offspring will be dispersed to every nation. It's unlimited. The blessing is unlimited. And beloved, that blessing began to be fulfilled with the birth of Jesus our King. Who are Abraham's offspring? Well, in a sense, they're us. Romans 4 verse 11 tells us that he is the father of all who believe, of all who have faith. So that makes us his offspring. But, but... Galatians 3, verse 16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ was the true fulfillment of those three promises that God has given on the mountain. His birth ensured the blessing that Abraham was promised. His life and death purchased those blessings for Abraham. And his continued work through the church accomplishes those blessings even now. God promised to multiply Abraham's offspring like the stars of the sky. And in Romans 4, we're told... That he was the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. To make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith, but also father of those who were not circumcised, but who bore the faith 
of Abraham. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We, because of our faith, are the fulfillment of God's promise to give Abraham offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So are our fathers and their fathers and their fathers before them who trusted in the Lord. So are our children and their children and the people who come to know the Lord through us and all of the people in all of the churches throughout all of the world who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all the offspring of Abraham because they share his faith. And we who are his offspring share in the victory of Abraham. When Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus praised him. And he said that on that confession he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, today we are storming the gates of of our enemies, the gates of hell. Every time one of our children confesses Christ as their Savior, another soldier takes up the sword. Every time one of our neighbors repents and seeks Christ, Satan loses a battle. Every time two sinners reconcile with true forgiveness, Satan's defeat grows. Every time one of you triumphs over temptation and sin, the kingdom of God becomes stronger. We today are gaining the victory that was given to us by Christ and that is worked out through us by the Spirit of Christ. And God promised to bless the nations through the victory of the offspring of Abraham, and He's doing it. As the nations come to embrace Christ, they are blessed indeed. They're blessed with righteousness and peace and life eternal. They're blessed with the greatest gift man has known. A gift that can't fit under any tree because it fills our hearts and encompasses all our lives and multiplies itself through the deeds of our hands. The fulfillment of of Abraham's promise came through his offspring who is Jesus Christ and it is brought forth and demonstrated through his offspring who are you us today and that's why it's so crucial that we note the reason God gives for expressing this oath to Abraham see gifts are no good unless you use them aright kids you know that right the greatest toy will bring you no enjoyment as long as it's sitting in the box, right? You get get that gift on Christmas morning or maybe Christmas Eve and you open it up and you you look at the box and you think, wow, that's really cool, but you don't leave it there, do you? You open the box, you put batteries in it if it needs it, you you figure out how it works and then it becomes enjoyable, then it becomes profitable. Well, so it is with God's gifts. Unless we receive them aright, they do no good. What is it that God commends in Abraham? What is it that prompts him to give him this sure oath of the promises? Verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham's obedience, understand, did not earn him any of God's blessings. We can't earn those blessings. There's nothing we can do to deserve what God gives us. But, nonetheless, God blesses us by means of our faith. God 
sends his blessings by means of that pathway of faith. That's how we employ the gifts God gives us. That's how we use them. He has made us. Well, he has given us the promise. Every one of us who was baptized was given the promise. I will be your God and you will be my children. That's the promise that you will be Abraham's offspring. But you won't receive the thing promised unless you receive it by faith. That's unwrapping the gift. That's taking it out of the box. God promised that to you will come the victory of Christ. Victory over the the sin and the defilement that would destroy you. Victory over the chains that once bound you to your sin. Victory that will allow you to be transformed triumphant over Satan's schemes that you might bear the image of Christ, but you can only get it by, way, by the way of faith. You can only get it by taking up the instruction he gives you and following those commands. Jesus said, if you love me, cadets, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? That's your constant memory verse. And that's a good memory verse because that's what faith does. It obeys his commands. It does what he says. It demonstrates its truth by our actions. And when we demonstrate our faith by our actions, we take up that victory of Christ and we become a blessing to the nations. Not just to ourselves, not just to our families, but to all of those with whom God surrounds us, to our co-workers, to our friends, to our classmates, to our community, to our state, to our world. That's not us doing that. That's God working through us. That's God bringing those promises through us. And he does it by means of the faith that Abraham demonstrates here. That is how we receive. That is how we use the gifts he has given us. And brothers and sisters, all of this is the meaning of Christmas. God loved us so much that he commanded the perfect sacrifice to secure our blessing. That precious sacrifice was born in the form of the unique Son of God. The Son was sent to us as a ram who would serve as our perfect sacrifice. And through Him, God has given the sure promise of blessing unlimited for all who take up those promises by the faith of Abraham. So may God strengthen our faith. May He enable us to take up those gifts He has given And may he, through us, be perpetually blessed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have resolved to bless us so richly and have done everything necessary to bring those blessings to bear through the work of your Son. May you teach us to receive it all by faith. And may you be glorified through us as we openly acknowledge that you are the one who has given all the good in our lives, especially the good of the salvation we have received through